Why do it? In essence, that's the question he was asked. Why give a rival political campaign any oxygen? You're supposed to suffocate them, bury them. Why do it? Why elevate your opponent in a race that you're really sure to win? Why give them any traction? See, those are the kind of questions that Spencer Cox was asked when he was queried about the recent political ad that you may have seen between the two candidates for the governorship of Utah. And if you haven't, you just need to Google it. Chris Peterson and Spencer Cox. You see, they made a, a, an ad that really talked about respecting one another and actually liking one another, even though they are politically different. Spencer Cox said he admitted that the political intelligentsia would frown upon his decision. The power grabbers, the campaign managers would frown, but he said he believes the moment transcends partisan differences. And he went on to say this, politics have become a religion to people. Hear that again. Politics have become a religion to people. We have to tear other people down. And he said this, we know our country is on the brink. And he was referring to his opponent, Chris Peterson, when he said, we, Chris and Spencer, know our country is on the brink. Chris Peterson, his opponent, said this, we have, policy this, we have policy agreements and disagreements, but we came together because we recognize there are some real challenges our country is facing. And then he said, people are craving some kindness and decency back in their politics. And this is what happened. When they released that, in 24 hours, there were 2.5 million views. I think people are asking a question. And the question is, what are we becoming? And, and we began asking the question just a few weeks ago as we entered into this cycle, wanting to be formed and shaped by Scripture, wanting to let the life of Jesus and the model of Jesus form and shape us, wanting to let the truth of our faith be our primary form of discipleship, we ask the question, when this is all over, what will remain? Well, that leads to this question. It's really articulated well in the words from Tish Harrison as she wrote these words. She, she was talking about the state of the mission of the church. She was talking about what is the church going to be like? How are we going to be effective? What is going to make the difference? What is the impact of the church going to be? And she said this, it's going to be determined less by what happens in this one election and more by who we become over the coming decades, over the advance ahead. Who we become. I'm challenged by that thought. Who am I becoming? What are we becoming? She goes on and provides some further clarity as she was writing about the early church being a political body, she said, a robustly Christian political theology requires that Christians become a different kind of people whose lives bear witness to Jesus in ways that the world finds astonishing, perplexing, and unrecognizable. Unrecognizable compared to the 
standard operating procedure of the world around us. Pastor John Piper said it this way recently. He said, the people who do the most good for the greatest number for the longest time, including America, are people who have the aroma of another world with another king. So here's the question for, for, for me, and I invite you into it. How are we being that different kind of people, especially among such polarizing opinions? How can we be the aroma of the kingdom that is not of this world, as Jesus said? Harrison goes on and she says, for us to be those people, we need postures of humility, truthfulness, joy, kindness, and love for our enemies. Postures profoundly lacking on both sides of the aisle. The deepest divide in American politics is not between right or left, but between those who are committed to these postures in word and deed and those who are not. I think that's just something we need to think about when we start asking questions like, what are we becoming? Who am I becoming? And, and because of that question, because of those ideas, we must consider the posture of power. Now, let's not pretend in two days people across our nation will cast a ballot for the president, for members of Congress, for state and local leaders, and in voting, we will exercise power. Power that's been given to us in a democracy like ours. And in our voting, we're going to give power to mere mortals. And really, I know this sounds cynical, but it's about who gains the power. And as scripture says, there's nothing new under the sun. It's been going on for a long time. In fact, the voice paraphrase of Luke 22, verse 25, captures how Jesus recognized that reality. In Luke 22, 25, he said, the authority figures of the outsiders play this game, flexing their muscles in competition for power over one another, masking their quest for domination behind words like benefactor or public servant. And that sounds eerily familiar to me of a political campaign, doesn't it? Power. Now, understandably, power has a, a bad reputation for the most part, but the question really isn't about whether it's good or bad. The question is, what is its purpose in power? Even Jesus promised us, Jesus said that he would give us power. Maybe the best book I've ever read on this subject of power and of what we do with it is a book by a man by the name of Andy Crouch called Playing God. And I would invite you to read that book. He wrote that a number of years ago. But he says that power is a gift. And he takes it further and he says, power is our ability to make something of the world. But then he goes on and says, but power is nothing. It's worse than nothing without love. Hear that. Power is nothing. It's, it's worse than nothing without love. Well, as I said in our prayer um, today, this past week, James and Molly welcomed little Jonas Gary Shetler into the world, right? He's as cute as can be. When I saw Jonas in the arms of his daddy on a Zoom, I, I got a text saying, you know, 
can we do some kind of video call? And here they are in the hospital, and the, that day they sent me this little picture of this little guy, and here is James holding Jonas Gary. When, when I saw that, it was a beautiful picture. And it was a picture of utter powerlessness. No ability for Jonas to walk. He doesn't have that ability. He has no ability to feed himself. He, he can't even change his soiled clothes. It was this amazing picture of him resting in his father's arms, completely powerless. But it was also this incredible picture of the absolute power that James had in that moment, and now still, has over little Jonas. Absolute power. Jonas is dependent upon the absolute power of his parents for everything that they have over him. But here's a question. Why are you not concerned today for the absolute power that these parents have over this child? Love. Because of love. And here's the truth. Because of love, because of the love that they have, the more power that they have over Jonas, the more they are prepared to sacrifice for him, forgetting self-interest on his behalf, setting aside personal agenda. Why? Because they want to make something of his life that is good and productive and redemptive in the world. Because what love does is love changes power. It transfigures it. It uses it. As Crouch went on to say, power transfigured by love is the power that made and saves the world. It's that powerful. And that is why in Luke chapter 22, we meet Jesus the day before he goes to the cross. And three things have happened. First, he has demonstrated what love empowered looks like by washing their feet. Secondly, Judas has agreed to betray him, showing this cheap power grab motivated by self-interest. And then we see that Jesus has shared the Last Supper with them, pointing to his sacrifice. And now we enter into this really uncomfortable exchange between Jesus and the disciples. Because just moments after Jesus predicts his betrayal, the disciples immediately move to self-interest. The first thing they do is they, they make sure that they're deflecting whether or not they are the betrayer. And then it quickly leads to another question. It says in the text, the dispute also rose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Which of them, which of them was considered to be the greatest? Now, the language is important because the idea behind was considered is really about self-preoccupation. That's what it's about. It was not about greatness in God's eyes, but greatness and position and power for self-interest. And so I think we can learn something from Jesus as we ask the question, so what are we becoming? As we ask that question, 
Because power helps us become. What do we ask? What does Jesus teach us? Let's learn from him. In Luke chapter 22, we find these words. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Thanks be to God for his word. It is estimated this year that $11 billion will be spent by the candidates at every level, outside groups, parties, candidates, for the 2020 election season, across the board. I just take that number in, if you would. $11 billion. That's 50% higher than 2016. Why are they going to do that? Because they're trying to find a seat at the head of the table, the head seat, if you will. And that's the way power works in our world, right? I mean, that's the way it works. Jesus basically recognizes that. He says, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, the head of the table? Jesus is stating the obvious behind the world's view of power and the disciples' quest for greatness. But in his comments, he also unearths for us what is at the heart of most disputes, of most wars, of of most strife in the world. Strife in our homes, strife in our lives, strife in our communities. The desire to be at the head of the table no matter the costs. Now, for us to understand what Jesus is saying, we must understand that this is probably one of, if not the most politically charged times for him and for these people. This is Passover. And now descended upon Jerusalem are rabbis from every tribe of Judaism, Pharisees from many local synagogues, messianic imitators with messianic complexes and ambitions, miracle workers, and all their disciples and all their adherents in tow. That's what's happening. Add to that the Pharisees and the Sadducees who have their iron power grip on the temple, plus on the walls overlooking the temple, literally, there are likely close to 2,000 Roman soldiers from Fort Antonia in Jerusalem who are looking over and are a reminder of the political power of Rome. That is a lot of power, concentrated power, in one small geographical area. But that's what's happening as Jesus is teaching his disciples. And Jesus points to those realities of his day. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. The leaders of those days wanted to lord it over them and were always looking to be seen as the best candidate for the job. It's in essence what he is saying. It's a very political statement, actually, from Jesus. But he is always using political terms. In John 13, he said, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. In Matthew 24, he says, And the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. 
terms like gospel and kingdom and Lord, as we've said before, were politically charged terms for the religious and the non-religious. Especially in this context. These were terms reserved for Caesar and his government. There's one difference. One difference. Jesus played by a different set of rules when it comes to power. Jesus is the most powerful king of all time. Most powerful king. Yet for him, power was not about rule or authority or supremacy, though all of that belonged to him. Power was not about selfish interest or protection or survival or leverage or position. None of that. Jesus, the holder of absolute authority and the only one ever qualified to be so, says this, but I am among you as one who serves. Take that in. I'm among you as one who serves. The system of the world around you and me wants the seat at the head of the table, but this one who left heaven to humble himself shows a way to be more human. The way, the real way of power. So for Jesus, it was about using power for a different purpose. Using power for the powerless, the forgotten, the lost, the marginalized, the weak. Now let me ask you, aren't you glad that Jesus used power and uses power for the powerless? I am so glad because as scripture reminds me in Romans chapter 5, it says, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were still powerless, But catch it, Jesus met us at our powerlessness by becoming powerless. He died for us. He sacrificed, he gave up power for us. And that is the good news of the gospel at its purest form. And we'll come back to that. But power is intended to be an implement of love. So how is power an implement of love in these days, in your life and mine? How is it? What if that question was the question we began to ask ourselves as we you know, found our way in this home stretch in our culture? And, and I think there's a, another question for me as a Christian, and it's this. Does this not mean that I need to consider the ways of power in my world that I am comfortable with which may not be the way of Jesus? Am I too comfortable with the way of power in my world than I should be? You see, we really don't hear about power as an implement of love as candidates vie for votes. I have yet to see one of the campaign commercials come on and say, want you to know power is an implement of love. Most of the time, they play on our worst fears. 
or they play on our tightly held wants. We don't hear them talk much about power as an implement of love. But I want to remind you what we're after. What kind of people are we becoming as followers of Jesus? And maybe we should ask, what kind of people of power are we becoming as followers of Jesus? It calls to mind the words of Jesus that are words about power. When he said this, you know these words, these come from the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's another slogan we're not going to find on a campaign folder that you're going to get in the mail. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That makes no sense. That makes absolutely no sense in our world, does it? We think it is the powerful who own the earth. But one five-foot-tall woman, and maybe that would be five feet if she was standing in heels, one five-foot-tall woman proved this all to be wrong, this idea of power in our world. Mother Teresa commanded audiences with kings and presidents and world leaders. Businessmen and theologians and doctors hung on her words. The rulers of the world, you know, if you got Mother Teresa on your calendar and you were a ruler of the world, you trembled a little bit. The rulers of the world quaked in her presence as she spoke into their power. You remember the famous 1994 presidential prayer breakfast when she sat and talked about abortion and the value of every single life in the presence of some very uncomfortable politicians. She, with power, saw that it was of necessity to care for the poor. And that health care, especially for the least, was not only a human right in her mind, but a Christian responsibility. She saw that every child mattered. So she created orphanages. This is exercising power. She saw the least, the most powerless, those who were the most undesirable as people that she needed to bring love to. Here's the question. You see, in a real sense, Mother Teresa inherited the earth. In a real sense, when Mother Teresa walked in the room, man, five foot, she'd come walking in, she'd be the center. Wouldn't matter who that world leader was. She'd walk in, she'd change the dynamic. Why? The question I ask is, what was the secret of Mother Teresa's power? Well, the secret goes back in time with her. And the secret is this. The secret for Mother Teresa was the dying leper on the streets of Calcutta. 
The one who was utterly powerless and in love. She looked at them. The one who had nothing to bring to society. The one who was the outcast. The one who who didn't have their retirement fund over here. The one who didn't have their home, physical home over here. The one who had nothing. The one who could give nothing. That one. See, that's where the secret to Mother Teresa lies. Because she left a life of comfort and convenience. 18 years old, went into a convent, became a principal in a very comfortable position. In education. And she left a life of comfort and convenience and sought to provide dignity and care and love and grace to the dying, to the marginalized, to the least, to the powerless. Though there would not be one perceivable benefit to her. Her power became an implement of love and it was that which humbled the most powerful people in the world. What a thought that is. There's ultimately one grand purpose for power, as Andy Crouch went on to say. He he said, we're meant to pour out our power fearlessly, like Christ. We are to spend our privilege recklessly and leave our status in the dust of our headlong pursuit of love. Remember what we're trying to be formed and shaped by at the very start of this series of messages. We're trying to be formed and shaped by what's true about Christ and the word of God. So we are to pour out our power fearlessly. We are to spend our privilege recklessly. We are to leave our status in the dust of our headlong pursuit of love. Now don't get me wrong. We will all have a seat at a table. But the question is which table will we choose to sit at? Whether in the arena of the national election or the place we call church or the structure of our home or the field of our workplace. What are these words of Jesus saying about us? But I'm among you as one who serves. I guess that's the question that comes to my mind as I wonder about what I'm becoming, what we are becoming. It's a question I think needs to be asked as the election draws near. Before I ask if my version of the American dream will be fulfilled. Or who will create my idea of government or who will protect my right to choose whatever I want. What are these words of Jesus saying to me? How are they shaping me? How are they forming me in these days? You see, that is the question. Christ follower, kingdom of God citizen, because the ultimate symbol and show of power, the ultimate symbol and show of power in all of time, the power that changed the world was powerlessness found at the cross of Jesus. The symbols that we will participate in this morning, the common elements of bread and cup, 
they're symbols that direct us to this power found in his powerlessness. In a recent article about why Christians cannot fit neatly into any one political party, Timothy Keller wrote these words. The gospel gives us the resources to love people who reject both our beliefs and us personally. Christians should think of how God rescued them. He did it not by taking power, but by coming to earth, losing glory and power, and serving and dying on a cross. How did Jesus save? Not with a sword, but with nails in his hands. That's how he saved. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the God of the Bible gains ground and power in the world by being powerless. And thanks be to God, because when I ask the question, what am I becoming? It is because of his powerlessness that I can become what God wants me to be. Romans 5, again, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we were powerless, when you were powerless, when I was powerless, Jesus Christ gave himself for us. So we have a place at the table. This table of the Lord we turn to reveals that. It's a table that points us to true power, the power that changes the world. It's a table that reminds us of the Savior who exercised the truest form of power, using his power for the powerless, us, by becoming powerless for us and calling us to then go and use our power for the powerless among us. This table, the table of the Lord's communion, is leveling ground. It's leveling ground for all of us with all of our differences and all of our opinions and all of our perspectives. We come to this table as one. And this table calls us to be a different kind of people to the world around us as those who serve. Those who, like our Savior, use power for the most powerless, just like he did for us. So I invite you to the table of the Lord. If you're at home and you're participating with us in communion, I would invite you to prepare your elements, and I invite the congregation here to prepare the elements that you have received by peeling back, starting to peel back that little clear cellophane piece. And as you do, that'll expose that wafer. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Spirit. We receive this with humble gratitude for the work of Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins and believing in Christ are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus.
So we come to the table that we may be renewed in life and salvation and that we may be made one by the Spirit of God and that we be reminded that when we were powerless, he died for us. He became powerless. That we would be reminded that he pointed us to a way of being that brings power as an implement of love to our world. Because that's what he did for us. So in unity with the church, we confess our faith that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And that creates leveling ground for all of us. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the bread and he broke it. He gave thanks to the Father and he said, my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread. Jesus then took the cup and again he gave thanks to the Father. And he gave the cup to his disciples. And he said, this is the cup of my new covenant, my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of many. Do this in remembrance of me. As we participate in the cup, let us be mindful that it is from his powerlessness, of his giving of his life, that we have found life. Let us partake in the cup. And now I just would invite us to pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray as his people. Let's pray together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Our worship team is going to play the song, In Christ Alone. And as they play that song, and we go from this place, and we enter into our week, may we remember that in Jesus Christ, in him alone, we find the true power to live. And let us go, and let us be like him in our world. In a world that's looking for different people. In a world that's longing for different people. Let us be those people, whatever our positions may be, let us be the people who reveal Jesus Christ in our world first and foremost. And may we do so in his peace. I pray that you go this week in the power of Jesus, becoming an implement of love that reveals him to our world.